G'day you mob, welcome to this episode of The Goss, where I sit down with my old man, my dad, Ian Smithson, and we talk about the week's news in Australia, news current affairs, everything like that, as well as whatever comes to mind, and maybe some worldly affairs too. So, today we talk about an ingenious contraption that is going to hopefully save Australia's bee population. We talk about some ingenious scientific work done on the 40-spotted partalote, a very tiny but endangered bird in Tasmania, and how we're going to save it from another mite, another blood-sucking parasite. We also talk about a woman from Townsville who saved a two-legged spider and nursed it back to health. And then lastly, we chat about some crazy little beetles that, when eaten by frogs, end up escaping out the... Well, you'll just have to wait and see. Anyway, guys, without any further ado, smack the bird. Let's get into it. So, what was the next story that you've got? Um, I've got, uh, I've got two. I've got a puppies and kittens story and I've got an idiot of the week story. So uh, you, you have at it. Which one do you want? Do you want the puppies and kittens? Which actually isn't a puppies and kittens, it's birds. <laughs> um, story about the uh, scientists who have found a solution to one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest non-human problems uh, for an endangered species of bird in Tasmania, the 40-spotted partalite. Yeah. Uh, which is a highly endangered... Uh, Very small, passerine yeah, bird, bird, right? Bird. Yeah. Um, and their their main problem they have is just, you know, the habitat's being destroyed. But um, So they're already vulnerable, but they also suffer from a parasitic fly um, that lays eggs in the bird's nests. And as soon as the bird's mm. chicks hatch, the maggots, you know, parasitise the, uh, the chicks and are just basically sucking the blood out of them, and they end up killing them. Well, they end up anemic, uh, and then just they end up anemic. They just you know you know they just don't have enough blood circulating around them, so they're they're not getting uh, they're not able to grow. Yeah. Uh, and apparently, in some areas, nine in ten hatchlings were dying before they got to fledging. So it was and sort of one two so- punch, was it, with the. Uh- Issues with humans as well. Yeah, so they're already endangered. And then the fact that you've suddenly got this, you know, discovered this problem with, you know, it's a natural parasite, but, um, you know, it's when you've got very small numbers of the birds and in such a small population, there's no resistance to them in this population and you're not going to get it because there's not enough variety, genetic variety in there. So um, the scientists have found that they can put a bird and other insect-friendly insecticide into chicken feathers, yeah, and they just provide these effectively chicken feather collection locations around where <laughs> these forty spotted partalites are, and the birds when they're building their nests will, you know, birds are they're smart. They'll find the easiest thing they do, so they go to these little feather collection centres and and pick the feathers out, build their, their the lining of their nests out of them, and when the flies uh, lay the eggs in there, the uh, it kills the eggs. Too so you, know, you don't you don't get any. Of these parasitic maggots. So uh, I reckon that's a pretty cool story that, A, they, they found that this was a problem and a significant problem, and then they found this sort of you know, weird, almost punk ecology <laughs> way of, so- of solving it, where we, yeah, we're not going to go around spraying you know, stuff everywhere, but we'll in- infect chicken feathers with this uh, insecticide. So, well, the fly probably has some sort of 
you know, complex relationship in the ecosystem there with a bunch of different birds too. So, it's obviously going to probably survive off of, um, you know, yeah, other common will, birds, yeah. but you need to be able yeah. to protect, the, protect these is, small ones. And again, this is one of these things where the you don't want to try and wipe out a species completely. You don't yeah. want to just say, well, we'll just wipe out these flies completely because there will be other, these other complex, you know, ecological relationships that we're just not aware of. And... Um, but this sort of thing means that you can you can knock the population of them or at least the effectiveness of them down to a manageable level. There are still going to be some partalites that are not choosing enough chicken feathers to line their nests or that are living in areas where the scientists are not putting chicken feathers. Um, and so there will still be some of these flies around. But, uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. I wanted to talk a little bit about Tasmania because I find it so enticing in terms of wanting to go and live there because of house prices prices being much cheaper yeah. than, than the mainland. But um, what is it preventing people from just moving there en masse and, and buying up a lot of this land that's affordable? Like, do you want to talk a little bit about what it's like? Because I've never obviously been to Tasmania. I want to go no, at some it's, point. It's but- I love Tasmania. It's a spectacularly beautiful place. Um, a friend of mine once told me, and I have yet to be anywhere to disprove it, that you can't go anywhere in Tasmania where you can't see a mountain. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, there's nowhere that you can go and just look at this 360-degree horizon around you uh, that's flat like anywhere else in Australia. You, you, go and, you only have to travel. You can see a little bit of hills out, outside of Melbourne, but you can travel 50 kilometres outside of Melbourne and it's just flat. Yeah, uh, but You can't do that in Tasmania. So it's very hilly. Um, it's obviously um, more temperate than than Melbourne in the sense that it's cooler and it's wetter, so it's, it's very green. It's, full it's very of, much like English countryside. It's full, the, full of beautiful bays as well and inlets, Yeah, and right? the beaches and the mountains, the forest there, the southwest forests are spectacular. Uh, so there's this large area of wilderness there. Uh, the big challenge is that it's small. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's... Population of Tasmania is just over half a million people, I think, so maybe 600,000 people. So it's very small, which means that it's it's difficult to have a self-sustaining economy. It relies on um, tourism and also trade back to the mainland um, in order to survive. Um, the other friend once told me that uh, the big challenge in Tasmania, this is somebody who lives in Tasmania and has yeah. done for most of his life, said the other challenge with Tasmania is that it's a retirement home in a national park. <laughs> so it's got the oldest average population in Australia and lots of people do go there to retire because it's a very pleasant place to live. If you don't want to work, you've got the money to survive and you're just going to retire. It's a yeah. very pleasant place to live. Um, but from a commercial development point of view, it's got the highest proportion of national park area and, and res- conserved, preserved and reserved areas of any state in Australia which is a great thing from a conservation point of view and it's a great thing from a tourist point of view because it remains beautiful, uh, but it has its challenges in terms of setting up large-scale uh, commercial enterprises. So it's it's a, it's a one of those anomalies of a place that it's a beautiful place to visit but you wouldn't want to live there, but it's a beautiful place to live if you don't need to work. So, well, I think a big issue too is getting there, right? Like if you were well, able to island. just, if you were yeah, able you to just drive there, there, drive there. Yeah, so. well, but that's it. Like it's closer to catch a bus. Yeah. It's, it's closer to us than say driving from Geelong or Melbourne to Canberra. So it would only be like Mark. a five-hour drive. Mark. Yeah, and yet 
you would have to get on a boat or a plane to get there, and it's usually yeah. what on the boat yeah. it's overnight, and on a plane and overnight or all day. Yeah, it's about an eight-hour ferry trip, uh, or it's jump on a plane for forty-five minutes. Yeah, because I was seriously considering moving down there. You know, when we came back to Ocean Grove, because it's like okay, there's affordable places to live, and it's beautiful. And uh, my job, which is the only job in our family that sustains us, doesn't need a specific mm-hmm. location. Yeah, and, and and funnily enough, one of the um, industries that took off in uh, broad scale industries that took off in Tasmania over the last 25 years is the IT industry. Yeah. Uh, because you're not reliant on commerce around you because you can service people from anywhere. So exactly. software creation in particular, you know, selling software or providing software services and those sort of things is fine. The, the big challenge is, is, as you say, travel that, you know, because I, one of the people I used to work with in a software company when I was, you know, we were working out of Melbourne, he lived in Hobart, and if he wanted to go anywhere, he had to get on a plane. Exactly. <laughs> if you don't have a customer in Tasmania, every customer interaction you have either has to be virtual or you're on a plane. And- well, the other issue I see is that I don't want to take my children somewhere where they're more than certain to move away from mm-hmm. once they finish um, yeah. high school. And yeah. so, it would be one of those things where you would be going there short-term if you wanted to stay with your children, because I would imagine if I took Noah there and the the unborn child that we have on the way, yes. they're going to be they're going to be happy going to primary school, going to high school probably, and then after that they're going to be like maybe right, even mainland. going to university. Yeah, if maybe maybe one university in the state. That's it, uh, or but, the the TAFE colleges that are there. But but um, you would imagine yeah, after right. that any opportunities they're going to have will be on the mainland, and it's probably yeah, a similar much. thing to rural Australia or regional Victoria, for instance. Yeah. You know, it would be the same thing. I keep thinking, oh man, it'd be so cool to live in East Gippsland where it's just beautiful. And Kel yeah. sees, you know, we we watch docos or whatever, and it's like, where's this? Oh well, my god! You're gonna work in the timber industry, which is dying. And then, then. she's like, yeah, well, um, well, I'm like, it's five hours from Melbourne, and so yes. our children. There's probably going to be one option for a primary school and a high school, and then after that, the the, the kids are going to be like, screw this, we're going to one of the cities, and then yeah. it will either stay there and never see them, or we have to move back anyway, right? So- yeah, and the, we we did that when you were little. We moved down to the beach, um, but at least. When you and your sister went to university, you went back to Melbourne um, to yeah. live and go to university there, but you're only an hour and 20 minutes away. Exactly. So, you know, you came home on the weekends or we went to see you. or you know, So, it wasn't like you had to go on a holiday to visit your children. So. Well, and that's the thing too. I kind of, you have to have that trade-off of, do I want my children to live in a wide open space that's affordable and have, you know, the forest and the beach and everything mm-hmm. like that? Or do you want them to have family that they're near? Because obviously, I'm not going to be uprooting my parents and my, you know, sister and her no. family and be like, everyone, let's go to Tassie. Yeah. <laughs> unless exactly. unless you guys retire and Annika and, and Rory suddenly get job opportunities in Tasmania that are, you know, more lucrative than what they currently have. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that may happen, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, you got to look at it and say, well, why would we leave here? We leave a, mm-hmm. a small-ish country town on the beach to go and live in a smallish country town on the beach. Where I can buy. <laughs> Where you can buy. Yeah. But right. you can't do anything else. Mind you, we can't do anything at the moment anyway. But yeah. that's the other thing is that Hobart, ironically, and possibly not ironically when you think about it, um, has a really great music scene. Pubs and clubs and stuff for music. Their local music scene is really good. But you want to see any of the major acts that come to yeah. Australia? They're not going to Hobart. Adelaide or Sydney or Brisbane or Perth. That nobody goes and plays a concert in Launceston or Hobart. <laughs> so, 
uh, at least very few do. You know, you might have a few Australian bands that tour there, but it's it's funny. The older I get, though, the more nostalgic I am for, you know, living in a place like that where it's a little smaller. You know, from watching TV shows growing up, like Sea Change, which yeah. was which ironically really- filmed right where you live. Well, and that's that's <laughs> the ironic thing. It was filmed. It was filmed in Barwon Heads and along the Great Ocean Road, but it was filmed in a way that made the the world that they were in seem a lot smaller than oh, yes. the, the yeah. reality of the places where they were filming. Yeah. And well, they that filmed kind it of in- world I would love to live in, which I, I kind of have in my head as being somewhere like in East Gippsland or in Tasmania, much more commonly yes. than, say, Ocean Grove, where we live currently yeah. or anywhere along the Great Ocean Road. Little, little country towns, regardless of where they are, have an appeal yeah. because of that sense of two things. One, I think that local community where everybody knows everybody, and that can be a pain. But it's also a, a really nice feeling where you can walk down the street and you know everybody by their first name. Um, but there's also the second thing of it is that you feel a bit isolated in a good way from the hustle and bustle of big yeah. city. Like, I love Melbourne. I think Melbourne is still mine. I'm biased because I lived there for 40 years. But um, it is, and yeah, regardless of the current situation with COVID, uh, it is regularly for the last 20 or 30 years has been nominated as the most livable city in the world. It's a fantastic place to live, but it's got 5 million people now yeah. and it's just busy and you can't get away from people no matter what you're doing. Um, you, know, you can go to you know, walk in the botanic gardens or the parks around the botanic gardens in Melbourne <laughs> And you will see thousands of people. Different people every day as well. Yeah, it's not exactly. the same places. <laughs> you, know, you get knocked over crossing the tan, the little track around the Botanic Gardens, because thousands of people go and run around it at lunchtime. It, and so it is this- weird though, right? Because it's kind of like you're a stranger in a crowd or you're alone in yeah, a crowd. Yeah, you get, alone in a crowd. You get yeah. used to so many people being around, but it's almost like you get past a certain threshold where- you don't form connections with them and they become mm. furniture in the house, right? So well, it's- I think particularly in the city areas. Yeah. Um, so you walk around Melbourne City, and you and I have talked about this before, Melbourne City is now an Asian city, Yeah. Uh, the actual CBD of Melbourne. And there's nothing wrong with that particularly. It's yeah. just that- It's just how it's ended up. It's just how it is. And, and the thing is, it's also a young Asian city. It's because they've got- yeah. you know, They're all students. Yeah, they're all students. Before universities within, you know, within the CBD or around it, university campuses anyway and so they're all you know, 18 to 25 year old students and again nothing wrong with that but it's just a different feel of the place it's like walking around singapore or hong kong uh you know you go out to the suburbs and you walk around the suburbs and that's i think suburbs are really that sort of alone in a crowd because yeah. the crowd is even hidden and you, know, you can walk around most suburban streets particularly at the moment and you won't see anybody um, but there are, you know, five million people living in this city. So it's a it's a sort of funny existence. Whereas country towns are a little less like that. You walk down the even now, you you can you walk down the main street in Ocean Grove and you might not see anybody that you know, but every at the moment you can't tell where they're smiling because they're all wearing a mask, but <laughs> everybody will smile and nod and say hello. Yeah. And and that's country towns. And funnily enough, Melbourne used to be like that. I, I had this uh, used, there's a for your our listeners. There's a an old rivalry between Melbourne and Sydney, um, <laughs> the two biggest cities. Melbourne's about five million people. Sydney is five and a half million people. Um, between them, they've got forty percent of the population of the country. Um, and 
there's always been this rivalry as to which is the better city and the better city to live in and the mm. better city for anything. doesn't matter what it is. Sydney say we've got the better beaches. Melbourne say we've got better, you know, theatre culture or whatever it happens to be. Um, and the old gag it used to be from Melbourne's point of view is that people in Sydney think they live in the best city in the world and people from Melbourne know they live in the best city in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and and one of the things that I'd always noticed about, you know, when you go to Sydney is that it feels like you're going to a foreign country. You don't feel like you're at home. And obviously I've come from Melbourne, um, but, and people have said the same thing to me traveling from overseas. You walk around Sydney and you feel like you're in the hustle and bustle, whereas you come to Melbourne um, and you feel like you're at home. And, and I asked somebody one day what they meant by that. And they said, if you go and stand on a street corner in Sydney with a map open, so you look like you're a tourist, you've got a map open, the most likely thing to happen to you is that somebody will bump into you and say, get out of my way. You do that in Melbourne, the most likely thing to do is that the first person who comes past will say, do you need a hand? Do you want yeah. to know where to go? And it's just a difference in mentality. And I'm not saying that you know, the majority of people in Melbourne or Sydney are probably the same. But there's just this feel of the place uh, that's like that. And Melbourne seems to have lost a bit of that now, and mm. Sydney never had it. But that was certainly what it was like when I was a student in Melbourne. You know, when I went years. to Sydney recently when I was living in Canberra with Kel, yeah. it definitely felt more claustrophobic there. It does. It seems like and there's it, less places for parking because I don't know I don't know how they have things set streets. up, but the streets are narrow really street. narrow. There's cars everywhere parked on the streets, and the buildings yeah. are very close together. And so I yeah. felt very like... It is. Close. It's a bit like New York. You walk around New York and it's very claustrophobic. Yeah. And Sydney's the same. Sydney's probably worse because the streets are even narrower. Um, so you, yeah, even if there's nobody on the street, you feel enclosed. You can't see the sky, whereas Melbourne's got broad streets. Yeah. You know, what so. they were made so that carts could turn around, right? Well, yeah, that's the old the thing. Big if you ones. Around, yeah, go to uh, any of the sort of big country towns in certainly in Victoria, New South Wales, and Queensland. Um, even these tiny little country towns have got main street. The main street will be 50 metres wide yeah. uh, because it was so a bullet dray could turn around. You know, this big cart being dragged by 10 cattle um, took, had a very big turning circle. And so they all, had, they all had these sort of four-lane, you know, divided highways going through a town that's got a 1,000 people in well, it. I think they go, planned it that way too, right? They did, just, yeah. 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 And yeah, Melbourne was planned. Um, Sydney wasn't. Sydney just grew from this original little colony, whereas the city of Melbourne was laid out and planned. I didn't realise how interesting the origin of Melbourne was in terms of Batman being, I think he was a currency lad, right? So he was born and bred, quote unquote. He was one of the, he was one of the first First generation born. in Australia. He had ended up in Tasmania working for, I think, Governor Arthur, doing some pretty dubious stuff with clearing out the Indigenous population and, yes. and being a bounty oh, he was hunter. He was a semi, you know, petty criminal that he grew up as and then he became a bigger one. But yeah, but then he he ends up realising that over over the ocean in, in Victoria, which was not currently a state, there's no, all of this land that yeah. was not being occupied. It's part of New South Wales. Exactly. Yeah. And so, he was like, you know what? If we go in, we could get a whole bunch of this land from the Indigenous people if we, quote, unquote, buy it from them or trade yeah. trade it from he them. He actually did. Oh, he, well, he did with one group, except he took all yes. these other groups. To except he was, he, was, he was buying from the wrong group who had no authority to sell it to him. <laughs> who had no idea what he was talking much, about. But at least he had the intent. And he didn't understand that at the time. Yeah. You know, and most Europeans at the time wouldn't have understood that you know, there are seven or eight language groups of Indigenous yeah. people around the Port Phillip Bay. It's certainly two major 
groups and smaller groups. So, but he, he had a go, you know, land at indented head and buy part of Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, well, and he had a massive rivalry going on with a publican in Faulkner. Yeah, yeah Faulkner back in Tasmania who also wanted to do the same sort of thing and mm-hmm. ends up coming over. So I think Batman comes over, does this whole trading with the indigenous local population where he gives them, you know, seven rugs and a bunch yeah. of looking glasses, which I imagine are binoculars. Mirrors. Mirrors. Mirrors, are they? Uh, okay. Yeah. And then all of these other, con- you know, not money, but just, no. just axes but and what, things. What use do they have for money? <laughs> well, true. They already had the land as well. But so, he gets something like 600,000 acres or hectares or something around yeah. where Melbourne is yeah. and sets up shop on one side of the Yarra River. And then I think he- I don't know. I can't remember exactly, but I think he goes back to Tasmania. For well, he never set, he never set anything up. Yeah, he basically arrived here in what eighteen thirty five. Yeah, and and just sort of you know, did his bargaining. Yeah, I don't think he ever actually set foot. I think he had no. In he had Melbourne. I'm pretty sure he had tents sort of, set up and everything on, oh, yeah, on the Yarra but, River. But he didn't. His 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 group did. Yeah, uh, he just went straight back to Tasmania and never came back again. Whereas Faulkner. Um, you know, came over here and went, well, this is a good deal. I'm yeah. just going to take over. And, and he, he did. He parked yeah. on the opposite side of the Yarra River. Exactly. And yeah. so, it was a really interesting way. that now, the, the city of Melbourne side. Yeah, it was funny <laughs> how um, Melbourne was founded with this, this rivalry going on, but both Faulkner and Batman were, well, Batman at least seems to have been a very complex character, but Faulkner seems to have just been this kind of like rip-off merchant, you know, yeah, horrible yeah, guy. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I felt really bad when I was reading about Batman's story in the end for him because, you know, although he does all this horrible stuff throughout his life, he dies from syphilis. Yeah. And I think that in in modern, you know, memory, we don't really have any understanding of what that death is kind of like, no, like, and that, that how horrible syphilis is. Yeah, because yeah, his yeah, face was falling bark. apart, his whole body yeah, his was rotting. Fell off and, yeah. <laughs> so, I definitely felt sorry for him, but um, yeah, it was an interesting, interesting read, when, and that was happening all at the same time as Buckley, who was living in with the Indigenous people, the Wadarong, for 35 down, down years. The Bellarine Peninsula. Yeah, around yeah. here, and he, he was yeah. the first to come in contact with- um, with the Wuthering, yeah. No, with um, what's his name, Batman. When Batman oh, first yeah. came over, yeah. over and landed here, and was yeah, like, he, "You need to get away. They're going to kill you." <laughs> just randomly turned up, because <laughs> he could have been anywhere, but he just happened to be an indented head. When I think Batman he'd he'd had news that they were there were white were men coming, coming. Yeah. yeah, and and so he heard from the other Wuthering people. They were like, mm-hmm. you know, we're probably going to off these dudes. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, oh man, it's been a bit of a, a long break there, but um, the, yeah. next, the next story I had, which was a real cool one that I'm going to have to send over to my um, grandfather, who is, what's the word, apiarist? Is that a beekeeper? Yes, an apiarist. Apiarist. Yes. Apiarist. I only learned that word when I started learning Portuguese, and it was the same thing in Portuguese. Yeah, funny like, about that. It's a Latin root. <laughs> yeah. So, engineers brought together by, um, by Mars are now using technology to save Australia's bees from the devastating varroa mite which isn't in Australia yet, but Bega Cheese Limited has launched launched a project called Bee Honey um, created by an agency called Thinkabelle. And the whole point of this was to be able to detect varroa mite, varroa destructor, when it gets into the hives of honeybees. And Mm. so, there are a bunch of people who I think were working either for NASA or on making robots that go to, to Mars. They were working with AI algorithms and, and, and robotics that have launched a project called the Purple Hive Project that I think is funded by Bega Cheese here that they effectively have two cameras 
in a contraption that goes on the front of a beehive and the cameras look down and look up as the bees enter or exit the hive and they can they take all these photos and the ai algorithm can work out whether or not there are mites on the bees oh really yeah and so they're solar powered so they can go anywhere in australia and they Mm. use the phone networks to send messages to the um apiarists or to the farmers to let them know if there have been infections or not and so yeah, so apparently they can then just yeah destroy the uh, the hive. I think and- yeah, I'd imagine that's all that they they have left to them. But the mites a massive problem because it gets in and sucks the the blood from the um yeah. the bees yeah. whilst they're working and everything, and it, it ends up leaving leaving you know devastation in its wake where the hives just collapse and you have you know tens of thousands, if not millions, of bees dead. Yeah. But I think Australia's the only other hab- inhabited human inhabited continent. Um, so, obviously, Antarctica and Australia are the only continents that don't have varroa mite. Yes. So, we have to keep protecting it. But um, apparently, it's a massive issue. They're, they're needing to make sure for not just the honey industry, but also for a lot of our fruiting trees and nut trees. Like, I think almonds rely mm-hmm. entirely on bees, yep. bees. to pollinate yep. the um, the flowers throughout the almond orchards to allow the, mm-hmm. the almond nuts to grow afterwards if they didn't have any pollination from insects. There would be no almonds, so that's it, lots of lots of plant crops that are the same. Yeah, and it's interesting. I was watching a doco recently on bees beekeeping, and that they, I think it was in the U.S. Some of them have to travel all across the United States from season to season, taking their hives to different orchards and leaving them there for a few months for mm. the bees to do their yeah, pollination, propagate, pollinate, and propagate the uh, the plants. Yeah, yeah and so. What has it been like since, you know, you were growing up with the issue with bees? Because it seems to be in the news every few months that we're, we're hearing about the crisis that is facing, um, you know, bees and why they're so important throughout the world. Was that something that you guys were ever worried about when you were growing no, up? No, we didn't even think about it. G'day, mate. That was the first half of this episode of The Goss. If you would like to continue watching or continue listening to this episode make sure that you sign up for the premium podcast or academy memberships at aussieenglish.com.au where you will get full access to these entire episodes of this series and much, much more. You can go check that out using the links below or just go to aussieenglish.com.au. Once again, thank you so much for joining me, mate, and I will see you next time. Peace. Peace.